If God were to personally walk the earth, what do you imagine that he would be like? Where would he go first? Like, what kinds of things might he do? Who do you think he would be spending time with? What do you hope that he might do? In the Gospel of Mark, we get some answers to many of those questions. And for the past several weeks, we've been walking through the first chapter of Mark's Gospel in which Jesus has been presented not only as the Messiah or the Christ, that's the Greek word for Messiah, but he's been presented to us in Mark's Gospel as God himself, God in the flesh dwelling among us. In Mark 1, 14 and 15, Jesus declares that the reign of God has come near, and in light of this decisive news, Jesus is calling all of humanity to repent and to trust in the good news of God's reign. So Mark has presented Jesus as God among us, and Jesus has declared that with his arrival, with his arrival on earth in the flesh, so also has arrived the reign of God. And what follows from that announcement in Mark 1, 14, 15 is absolutely vital because I am sure that Jesus said and did lots of things that couldn't fit in the Bible, right? Uh, but what happens is that each of the four gospel writers organizes the stories of Jesus in different formats depending on their audience and depending on their just the way people tell a story. Four different people tell the same story four different ways. And by the very nature of how Mark tells the story of Jesus, it reveals to us what Mark believes are some of the most important things for us to know about Jesus. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we started exploring how Mark presents Jesus. And, and we saw that the first thing Jesus does after announcing the arrival of the reign of God is he builds a community. He's walking along the Sea of Galilee and he sees four fishermen. Simon, who's going to be later called Peter, and I'm just going to call him Peter a lot because that's how you probably know him, but we'll just say, okay, Simon Peter, it's one dude, and his brother Andrew, and he says, follow me, I'm going to make you fishers of men. He goes along the beach a little further and there's two more brothers, James and John, and we know that their dad's name is Zebedee, and the locals would be like, oh, I know those guys, and these four fishermen become the first little community of Jesus. Remember, Mark has presented Jesus to us as the maker of heaven and earth, and the first thing that he does with his life after announcing the reign of God is to build a community. That says a lot about where his priorities are. Now, last week, we saw how after Jesus had walked on the seashore and built this little community of four guys, you know, the first thing they did after that is it's a Sabbath day, and he goes into the local synagogue in Capernaum. Jesus seems to be uh, honoring the imperfect communities who gather for worship, right? He goes to a local synagogue. After all, the synagogue was, was the gathering of people in local communities uh, where they got together to read scripture and to preach on those texts that were read and to sing songs of praise to God. And Jesus, Mark is already told us, but the people don't know it in the story yet, Mark has told us that Jesus is the God that gave them the scriptures. He's the God that they're actually worshiping. They just haven't realized it yet. 
And it was there in this local house of worship in the synagogue in Capernaum that Jesus, the light of the world and the prince of peace, encounters a man who's possessed by a spirit of darkness from the prince of lies, a demonic spirit. And with the same voice that Jesus spoke the creation into being, Jesus gives a command to this demon and it it leaves the man. He's liberated this human being, this image bearer of God is set free at the command of Jesus. And the people in the synagogue are just like, whoa, who is this guy who has this authority to teach this way and to speak to to evil spirits and they listen to him? He doesn't do all of the tricks of our exorcists. He doesn't have to do magical incantations. He just says it and it happens. And they're just left, wow, what authority, what exousia power from within this man possesses. And that's exactly the point to which we get to our text this evening. That's where we're at in the story. He's just released this man from captivity. He's in the synagogue, and the people are blown away. They say, where does this man get this authority? And now we're at Mark 1, 29 through 34, and here's how the story goes. Immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them, or she served them. When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all those who were ill and demon-possessed. And it seemed like the whole city had gathered at the door, And he healed many who were ill with various diseases, and he cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. Now sometimes, sometimes in Bible stories, they sound so foreign to us and they feel so unreal that I I thought it would be helpful to just try and imagine what it would be like um, to be there in the story with Jesus. Maybe, maybe just a bystander watching from the crowd, seeing all of this stuff go down. What do you imagine the place looked like? How big was this town of Capernaum in the first century? What is the scale of distances? What did the synagogue look like, and how far was Simon and Andrew's house, and what what was the commute like between those two places where our stories converge? Well, thankfully, archaeology is a constant stream of new information as excavations reveal more and more of these ancient sites. And our story this evening, the one that we're rooted in in Mark 1, is just such a place. Just to situate ourselves, I want us to look at this part of Capernaum as it looks today. So Lucy's going to put up a, a picture there, the first, the first photo. And this is Capernaum, if you were to have a drone shot of, of what it looks like today. And I, I know it's a little bit small. Uh, there is a white building in the closest to us, and that has a domed roof, and that is a, an Eastern Orthodox church there. Um, but if you look beyond that near the shore, there is a weird octagonal building And that is the site of Peter's house. Uh, Let's go to the next photo. And this is a a depiction of the site as it was found in 1972. So this has been excavated, and um, 
What can you see? Not much. Let's go to the next one. <laughs> okay, so this, this is uh, uh, that same site, and the building uh, furthest from the water, kind of the white building, that's the ruins of the synagogue. Uh, the exact synagogue where Jesus is casting out this demon and teaching, uh, and the people are saying, what authority he has. And then if you go towards the water, that next building, there it is, right there. Go ahead, Lucy, go to that next photo. Yeah, that weird octagonal building. So that is the site over Peter's and Andrew's house where the mother-in-law was sick. And that weird octagonal thing is like a modern-day building and in the floor of it if you were to look inside it's a glass floor and you look down on the ruin of of Andrew and Simon's house but uh, it's kind of a worship center with eight sides and there's actually like chairs and people do worship services in there and stuff like that Um, but that's kind of that's kind of the gist now what's interesting is I don't know if you've done pilgrimages before or you've you've been to some sites in Europe and you're like uh, like I remember one time Corey and I were in Venice and we paid way too much money and we got on a gondola boat you know because you gotta do it and it's like so we're in there and the tour guide's like and over here is the house of marco polo and then we went a little further and he goes but over here might be the house of marco polo and then we go down another corner but this i'm pretty sure is the house of marco polo right and it's like well, which one's the house of more like you're just like trying to make money here get, you know get us to see all this stuff well this is a really unique ruin uh, because it hasn't changed hands like that over the centuries um let me just um uh read an interesting thing so photo number five there lucy if you could put that one back up there is a yeah, so, th- well, that's what, that's what it would have looked like, a depiction uh, in the time when Jesus is, is ministering there, and there's a cutaway of that roof, and that became an early church in the first few centuries, um, but I think there's one more, Lucy. Let's go to the next one, and this one, I don't expect you to read ancient Greek anyway, and I can barely make out the scrawl, but this, this is really interesting because this is an, uh, an example of some graffiti that's in the wall there, and the walls are covered with graffiti over the centuries, and they're in Syriac, and Greek, and then they're in Latin, uh, and they're in Coptic, and what this tells us is that pilgrims have been coming here for centuries and centuries, and what this graffiti says is, is things like, Christ help us, or there's the, Wayne even, I don't even think we collaborated, but Wayne made like the picture of the fish here <laughs> with the communion things. Um, there's fish in there, which is in Greek, ichthus, which is like Jesus Christ, son of God, um, and, and so, um, That graffiti is all over the walls. I want to read what one scholar says from the Lexham graphic commentary of the Gospels. He writes, It seems unlikely that the early believers would have allowed that place to slip into oblivion. Several clues from the archaeologist's work are also illuminating. For example, the main room was plastered, which is quite unusual for the first century. While normal ceramic remains would have been household pots in various, of various shapes, here they found large storage jars of oil. Oil lamps were also uh, part of the assemblage. So what they're saying is like a normal house has little storage jars for oil because there's just a few people there and you just have the light, but these large storage jars are uh, representing that people are there all the time. Like there's worshiping communities, there's pilgrims coming for centuries and centuries. 
And then he writes, in the fourth century, this central large room was expanded. And in one of the rooms, markings on the walls like what we might call graffiti mentioned Jesus, Lord, and Messiah. Signs of a fish and a crucifix were etched into the plastered walls. The inscriptions in Hebrew, Greek, Syriac, and Latin suggest pilgrims. One pilgrim left a bunch of notes. Egeria, a late fourth century pilgrim, noted the presence of a substantial church that met there in Capernaum. And it was in the 5th century that it was covered by an octagonal church, the architectural style that signified a memorial church, meaning a church that's built over a holy site. And Capernaum was the home to Peter and Andrew, James and John and Matthew, the tax collector who would also become an apostle. So why did I just entertain this weird archaeological rabbit trail? Because every once in a while, I think it's important for us to remember that these gospel stories are not just a collection of like myths and fables and short fiction that are meant to inspire us to good deeds. The gospels claim that God became a human being in the person of Jesus. They claim that he did this not in a hidden corner, you know, not conveniently like just himself and a bunch, like a a small group of people that invented all this stuff and then later wrote about it and it became big. But what, what it claims that he did all of this stuff out in the open. And the gospel writers use these names like the the dad Zebedee of James and John and, and, and these places because the people who are receiving Mark's gospel in the first century, like they know these people. They're part of that synagogue and they're like, I remember that story. I was sick that day with COVID. No, it's kidding. But like, uh, I remember that. They talked about that exorcism and then we couldn't believe it because the next night, all of these crowds and we got swallowed up in the crowd and we went over to, to Simon and Andrew's house And Jesus was there, and like my mom went there, and she was sick, and then she was healed. Like this is the those are the ways the gospels are presented to us. And there's no one disputing these things from the first century. It's really interesting. People knew Jesus, people who had seen him and heard him teach, people who knew the geography, who had worshipped in the synagogues like the one in Capernaum, possibly knew the guy with the demon friends with Peter's mother-in-law, or who themselves knew firsthand about the people that were there. So the details of the story in Matthew one, or Mark 1 are fairly straightforward. Jesus had just taught with noteworthy authority in the synagogue. He healed an individual man from demonic oppression. And then he goes the short distance, as you saw in that photo, very short distance from the synagogue to Simon and Andrew's home. Now, the fact that it's listed in their name, Simon and Andrew, uh, suggests that they inherited it from deceased parents or that the parents simply aren't named for some reason. But the detail we do know is that Simon Peter is married and that he has a mother-in-law. And the fact that she is at his home suggests that she's a widow and under the care of Peter, Simon, and his wife. So anyway, those details are neither here nor there. They're just interesting to me. Um, But she's sick and Jesus heals her. And then crowds begin to form, and people from all over Capernaum are bringing their ill, 
and the demon possessed, and Jesus was healing them and setting them free. So that's the story. An example of what happens when Jesus enters the lives of a community, an example of the reign of God breaking into our world. That's the story on the surface level. But for the remainder of this preaching moment, I'd like to take us beneath the surface for a deeper reading, in fact, particularly three layers of reading. So those three layers are personal, missional, and theological. Personal, missional, and theological. So let's start with the personal reading of the text. I can hardly imagine what it must have been like to experience the kind of desperation and busyness that was going on at Simon and Andrew's house. The crowds in Capernaum converging on that little space, Jesus being the one, the, one, the only one there who's doing the healing and all of this stuff. And my guess is that those of you in the medical community, especially clinical settings, probably have some sense of what that's like. Um, you know, especially during the height of the pandemic and RSV and all of this stuff, when people are just flooding the waiting room at the emergency room and, and, and the, the urgent care and oh my gosh, it's like if you've ever been on the receiving end of that, if you've ever been in the waiting room like I've been too many times, um, uh, it's kind of like a human purgatory. You're just sitting there. You feel like a number. It's very uncomfortable. Everybody's hacking and coughing and like moaning and it's horrible until you hear the words, the doctor will see you now or the nurse will see you now or, you know, Corey Hager or, you know, Marcus Parkins, you hear your name called, and then it's like, oh, it's about to happen, and you come back, and you begin to get attention, and that's when things kind of open up. In this story, every one of these people, from the individuals like the demon-possessed man and Peter's mother-in-law to the individuals who made up the personalities of those crowds, They all felt seen by Jesus the healer. Now let's focus on Simon's mother-in-law. We don't even know her name, but we know that she was suffering from an illness giving her a high fever. The Greek is poreto megalo. Per or pyre is from where we get the word fire. And mega is mega. We all know that word. It's big, right? And so she had a mega fire. That was like the symptoms. Mega fire. If, if you were to put your hand on her forehead, you might say, you're burning up, right? This is, this is the fever that she had going on. You're burning up. Today, we treat adults with fe- high fevers with a little bit of ibuprofen and, and maybe uh, bed rest. Um, but in the ancient world, a mega fever was likely the result of any number of things, from infection to disease to even, even influenza and pneumonia, any of which, without modern treatments, could be, and oftentimes were, deadly. So you've got a very sick woman and some concerned family members who seek out Jesus on her behalf. And Jesus responds, and he doesn't use a bunch of fancy words, and he doesn't make a scene about himself. The healing moment isn't ultimately about him. Jesus sees the woman, the healer touches her, and helps her up. It's almost like the Lord of life transfers his life into this woman. This woman of no name, 
We'll never hear about her name again. Maybe someday we'll know who she is. But she's important to someone, and she's important to Jesus. You know, it would have been enough for him to have healed her from the fever, but with Jesus, that, that isn't what he does it's not just about what Jesus does in the scriptures. I'll always keep coming back to this. It's how Jesus does things. It's how Jesus says things. His posture communicates his love and character just as much as his words and his deeds. The way Jesus does things communicates his respect for you, his love for you, his compassion for you. And this story is about so much more than healing. It's about a person being seen by the healer himself. Part of the gospel, reflected in all four gospel writers, is that we have a God who sees us, who loves us, who is compassionate toward us. That's not only a message for those um, who were with Jesus in person, but it's the message that Paul and the later apostles present to future generations after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And their claim is that Jesus shows us exactly what God is like. And that means that God is the one who takes time to see us and takes time to know us personally, even today. So if you feel lonely, misunderstood, isolated, maybe in the midst of being with people, but still not feeling like you belong to that group of people, know this. Jesus the healer sees you. He looks upon you with respect and love and compassion. That's the personal reading of the text. If we continue deep uh, digging into this passage, I want to introduce us to the missional reading of the story. A lot of people have read this story through our modern 21st century eyes and have been sort of put off by the fact that Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law and then the first thing that she does is to wait on them. And one writer quipped, how convenient, Jesus healed the woman right before lunch. <laughs> as, if, you know, as if, you know, like, oh, just in time to serve the meal, right? Woman's work, right? So while it's sort of an amusing remark, it betrays a bit of arrogance on our, that our cultural perspective is the one through whom we should judge all other cultural perspectives. It's a little bit like, let's just take a chill pill and try and get in the heads and minds of these folks. Um, the reality is that there are a few places a first century Jewish woman of the house would rather be than on her feet showing hospitality to whomever was in her home, right? Actually, my own mother is that way. Um, it's far as thing from Jewish you would ever find, but you cannot make her stop doing dishes and serving. It's just like, it's what she wants to do. It's what makes her feel whole, right? And, and so to restore this woman to health, restores her to her humanity and to her vocation, and that's where she feels fully alive, being able to do what she wants to do to express hospitality to the people in her home. The very definition of worship is responding with all we are to who God is and what God has done. 
These fishermen have just been handpicked by Jesus to be his disciples, and they bring him home, and they show him hospitality, and this woman has just been healed from potential death, and she responds through service, which is another form of worship. But there's more. Mark's word that he uses for Peter's mother-in-law waiting on Jesus is dekone. <laughs> You're like, so? Um, that's the word, uh, the Greek root from where we get the word deacon. So New Testament scholar William Platcher writes, most English translations render it deacon when we find that word in the New Testament and it's applied to men. And they translate it as servant when it's applied to women. And you can take that up, I guarantee you that's, I know the translations that they're talking about. It's pretty men-centric, right? But it is the exact same word and a lot of our English translations translate it as deacon when it applies to men or servant when it applies to women. Mark only uses this verb. Here's what's interesting. So in the other gospel writers, they use this verb for men and women. Mark only uses it for women and angels and Jesus. Deacon, servant. He never uses it for the male disciples. So what we have here in this story is a woman waiting on Jesus, truly being one of the first deacons in the Bible, a position of servant leadership in the church. Just lay that out there for you. Now, notice what is happening here. Jesus calls together a community. Jesus heals, and the response is not only thanks and not only personal worship, like, oh, Lord, you know, thank you for what you did for me, but it is a missional response. Peter and Andrew and, and um, Simon's uh, mother-in-law, they do nothing short of turn their home now into a hub or a hospital of sorts where the sick and the demon-possessed come to be healed by Jesus. And more than that, the community of Capernaum has come to this home of these newly healed people to encounter the healer himself. It's the goodness of God through Jesus that not only saves us, but propels us towards missional activity. We respond to Jesus by opening our arms to the sick and the wounded, the lonely, the disturbed, the anxious, the cynical. We're supposed to be a community that hosts thin places between the healer and the world, and that is an extremely awesome privilege. That's part of worship. Not just doing what we do here, where we sing our songs because we've been personally blessed and affected by Jesus, but then we, we go out. We're missional. We take that posture, and part of our worship is how we interface with other people, blessing them in Jesus' name. So finally, there's a third layer to this reading, and it's the theological reading. This is so cool. So Mark tells us that when evening came and the sun had set, making it the end of the Sabbath day. I mean, chronologically, he was in the, 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 the synagogue on Sabbath, and then it was evening time. Sabbath in the Jewish calendar is Friday night sundown to Saturday night sundown. So now it's Saturday night sundown. The Sabbath is over. And that's when the crowds, respecting the Sabbath, the crowds then begin to bring their sick 
and they're spiritually oppressed to Jesus, and he was healing them. So just also wrap your mind around that, that it's not like the morning time and the workday started. It's like nighttime, and now all the people are coming, and Jesus is not turning them away, but he's saying, okay, let's do this. Here's what's interesting. At the end of the Sabbath, during this time period, each household would perform a worship ritual called the Havdalah. And the Havdalah was a celebration of God's creation. And it was often associated with healing and restoration and reference to the fight against demonic power. So at the end of the Sabbath day, before the family would then uh, transition to being able to work and doing all the things and eat uh, any food they want, right? So they, they do this final blessing, the Havdalah, where they recognize God as the creator, they long for his restoration to come, and they pray about the healing and restoration of creation and the fight against demonic powers, okay? So that is what happens in first century Jewish homes at the end of the Sabbath, right when this story is taking place. And the significance here is stunning because here we not only have the time of day when the Havdalah might be recited in hopes that God would one day restore creation, but we actually have God in the flesh in this story bringing actual healing and casting out actual dark forces in real time. The reign of God is literally breaking in in this scene. And then to add another layer to all of this, this is so fun, Uh, the word used to describe Jesus raising the woman up by the hand um, is the same word used to describe the resurrection from the dead. He's not only raised a person to health in, but his resurrection power is on the loose, bringing healing and wholeness and restoration. I just want to close with this one last theological gem of good news. Ryan, just a few minutes ago, read Isaiah 53 to us. And we're told in that passage, that prophecy, that God would one day send his servant, a sort of mysterious figure who's going to take on the infirmities of other people, almost as absorbing the illnesses and diseases that lead to death, But not only those physical infirmities, but also sin and death itself. The servant will bring healing and shalom to the world. And here in Mark's gospel, we see that this prophecy is beginning to be fulfilled. In fact, in Matthew's version of this same story, he actually quotes Isaiah 53 to drive that point home. Matthew sort of didactic, you know, (laughs) yeah, Matthew's gospel, I love it, but it's very teachy. Uh, Mark is a little more like, I don't know, um, he's a little cool, avant-garde, like he just is playing it, he just wants you to kind of get the clues, right, so he plays it a little bit coy, but he's definitely dropping these hints, and the truth is, from the story that Peter's mother-in-law, like, all of these crowds, all of the people who are being released from demonic oppression in that story, they're all one day going to get sick again. They're all one day going to grow old and die. Um, and, And the reality is also that there's many of us who long for freedom from our ailments. Maybe you're dealing with chronic pain or or disease, or maybe it's an emotional thing, a trauma that you're just like, I don't know if there is healing in this lifetime. I don't know for sure if that's going to happen for everybody. So like, what's the promise for us? The promise in scripture is that through Jesus, 
All who trust in him will be set free from sin and death. And that there will come a day when he calls us forth into new creation, to resurrection. That same word as taking the mother-in-law by the hand and raising her to health is the same word spoken of our resurrection one day, like Jesus taking us by the hand and bringing us through a threshold to new life, to freedom and healing. A day when we're made new, set free, with incorruptible hearts and bodies and minds and emotions all set to thrive. In the meantime, we're called to trust and to receive the hope and peace of Christ. We're invited to live the good news of Jesus, to share that life with others. And part of that is through the laying on of hands and for praying for the healing of one another and our community. As we transition from this time of preaching, we're going to move into a time of healing prayer. Um, it's, it's our custom on the fourth Sunday of the month that we set aside time to pray for one another.